Welcome to Taken Off the Ritz, episode number four. I'm Dan Garman. I hope you guys like my new microphone setup. I am pretty pleased with it. In the span of a few years, college and higher education has gone from an accepted reality, at least for a sizable percentage of the American population, to something that more and more people are questioning. The value equation seems harder to balance with each coming year. In many places across the country, the cost of attending is prohibitive enough, even at the undergrad level, that it's wise to question if it's possible to get a proper return on people's investment, whether it's time, money, or both. For those in the arts and entertainment disciplines, whether it's music, dramaturgy, creative writing, theater, design technology, fine art, arts marketing or communication, graphic design, or anything else, it's hard not to look at college and university professors and wonder how they ended up in the positions where they ended up. Were they hoping to be making a living on the basis of their talent and the execution of their craft alone, and they ended up falling into teaching to make ends meet? Or have they always had a passion and a flair for teaching, and they decided to do it in higher education? Was it simply the logical endpoint of a degree path they chose a decade or more ago? Or have they always been searching for the ability to share their passions with the next generation? Are they more focused on groundbreaking research than on the few classes that they've gotten stuck with? Are they resigned into teaching a single calcified course year after year, no matter who is in what seat? Or are they willing to actively meet students on each of their own terms and prepare them for their futures, actually addressing realities or difficulties of making a living in any chosen field outside of the classroom? There's no simple answer, but it definitely feels like there's a lack of honesty about the circumstances of those in power in academia. As our incredible guest, Stephen Spencer, mentions later in this episode, there's a strong sense of survivorship bias. The only people left to teach the next generations are the ones who ended up making it work out somehow and landing the position that they landed. We don't talk enough about the people who pursue those same paths, who are told that it'll all work out if they just work hard enough and develop their skills enough, and then they never make it to their coveted professorship or a steady income from being the New York Times best-selling creative writer, or an animator who doesn't want to compromise their vision and go work for a house like Marvel slaving away on CGI for new films. Where are the stories of those who haven't succeeded? Would we change our calculus in considering the lives we choose if we had access to the full set of statistics of who is able to actually achieve the dream that they are sold? Today's guest was kind enough to sit down and reveal some of what is behind this veil of secrecy. Stephen Spencer is an extremely accomplished composer and music theorist who recently completed his double PhD at CUNY and now holds a coveted full-time professorship at Hunter College in New York City. 
His research combines insights from auditory perception and computational acoustics to explore a wide range of repertoire, including rock and pop music, film music, and post-tonal music of the 20th and 21st century. He is one of my best friends, and I'm so happy to introduce him to all of you. You are in for a treat. Please welcome Stephen Spencer to Taken Off the Ritz. Hey, Steve-O. Hey, Dan. How you doing? It's, I'm doing really well, man. It's so good to see you. It's been a, it's been a second. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. Anytime, man. You've been... You've been busy. Well, so first, first for people who, um, if you want to give people a little context on like what it is that you do and what you've been up to recently and just your, you know, just so, so people have a starting place of, of where to base everything off. Yeah, right. So, uh, I'm Steven, Steven Spencer. I am uh, a lecturer in music theory and musicianship at Hunter college. Uh, and I was trained as a composer uh, we were just talking, I, we, we reckon I did 13 years of that kind of training in 15 years, uh, <laughs> which we is, met, uh, we met, upsetting. we met, right. We met on our tour for college, actually. That's we right. did undergrad. We did undergrad together. We met in the, in the elevator. In the elevator, uh, which is McGill University. That's right. When we were both just small fries, high school students. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And you've been going ever since, which is honestly like a feat because I feel ancient. <laughs> that's one way to put it. Yeah, that's one way to put it. Um. So, yes, yeah, so you're a lecturer and you also were just uh, you were telling me you were at a conference. Yeah, that's right. I just got back from Denver for the joint conference, the joint annual meeting of the American Musicological Society and the Society for Music Theory. Whoa. So they meet every year. Well, the Society for Music Theory meets every year. Every every two years, they do a joint thing with the AMS. And uh, yeah, so it's like a really intense weekend of academia. It's schmoozing with strangers yes. and presenting your scholarship and listening to people present their scholarship. And it's just, it's a very demanding weekend, uh, super intense. Um and it's a weird, it's a weird thing that, that academics have to do. You have to go to the conference, uh, the big national conference every year. And it's a weird sort of beast of a, of a thing. But it's really, it really is, particularly for those who are early in their academic careers, you have to go. And that's, a, that's an interesting issue in itself, I think, uh, which Did I'm you? sure we can dig into. Yeah, I would love to. I mean... So, yeah, so broadly, instead, you know, in, for this one, instead of going back and talking about, you know, your your high school and your experience and how you found everything, because, you know, y- you are, just, just to begin, I mean, you're a killer musician. Like, let's just get that out of the way, that, like, we met, like, you play, what, what instruments do you play? I even forget sometimes. You play, like, everything, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm very bad at uh, bowed strings and <laughs> woodwinds. But I can, yeah, I play French horn and uh, I could probably figure out tuba. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, piano, piano and guitar are kind of my main things. And I was trained as a classical singer as well. Yeah. Yeah. And 
And I, and then you and then during your undergrad you switched your concentration from so classical voice to jazz after my first year for to jazz, jazz piano. piano. Yeah. But I was always a composer, so it was just what kind of lessons I took. I decided yeah. to switch to jazz. Yeah. But I think, uh, as will become clear in terms of your versatility and in terms of the basis in music that you have, that yes, you are compo- you're a PhD in composition and and music theory. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and there's a certain stuffiness that could, or, or a certain level of disconnect that maybe could come from that, at least from my limited understanding of that, it, it, from the sound of that as a PhD into non-performance based right. things. But you always like, you'll still sit down at a new year's party and, you know, play some guitar and sing or like play, you know, play some, sing some Billy Joel or something. Uh, right. Yeah. No. It's a. It's a. It's a interesting point uh, that the sort of more specialized you get into music studies, the more distant you are from like music making, um, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah, that's a, that's an interesting problem for sure. Uh, and I always try to just like make sure I'm coming back to like what got me here, which was just like a love of of playing with people. Um, yeah, man. yeah, and that's something that informs my my research and my teaching for sure. Yeah, so I mean, I think my biggest question as a macro question, which I think is a good place to jump in, is just like, so you did an undergrad, and then it became clear from your career path that I guess you had to do a master's and then continue school. I guess my question is, what kind of things over looking back over the past fifteen years? talk a little bit about the structure of academia and, you know, what compels one to continue and to do a PhD. Cause I think that's, I personally have a bachelor's and I never went back for my master's, even though classically everybody wanted me to, but you know, I found work and just started doing the thing and no one has ever asked me, Hey Dan, what degree do you have? No one has ever once asked me that. So I think for people who are weighing their options, yeah, maybe just kind of give it a, a broad overview of your experience. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the degree and nobody asking about it because just this weekend at an academic conference, that's like kind of one of the first few questions that you're asked, right? You have it on your name tag, right? Everyone's looking down at your name tag, name institution. And then you're trying to do this calculus of like, okay, they're at that institution. Does that mean they're a grad student at that institution, a master's student? Maybe they're a prof or an adjunct lecturer. All of these kinds of (laughs) little sort of this calculus of like, how do I place this person? Um, And for many people, it's like, how much uh, respect (laughs) is this person owed? Um, Yeah. So anyway, yeah, to answer your your question uh, uh, without opening too many cans of worms along the way. I, yeah, so I did a, a, an undergrad in, in composition. And for me, that was, uh, composition was this kind of like answer to a problem for me, which was that I played so much music and I was in like a funk band and I was in, you know, I was doing all sorts of different things and playing so many different kinds of instruments. And I felt that, like, I knew I was going to go into music somehow. There was always that understanding from like, I don't know, the 10th grade on or something like that. I knew that that was going to be a path for me. Um, yeah. But there was a, a great anxiety about like how, uh, what specializing would look like for me. 
And I had this idea mm-hmm. of like having to throw things away and focus. Like, am I going to be an orchestral French horn player? Like, those serious thought. That, like, right, right. And that path alone, I mean, that de- that is kind of looking down that path is daunting because the le- the level of commitment to commit to any single one of those paths is kind of a specialization in of itself. So yes. I'm sure that looking at yeah, do I want to be an orchestral French horn player? that would determine the course of the rest of your career until you maybe choose something else later. Yeah. 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 So I, um, I had this anxiety about uh, having to throw away things I loved in order to, and and choosing just one. Mm. Uh, And I felt that I would be nourishing only one part of me and a, and a big other part of me would be unfed somehow. So, so composition was an answer to that problem for me in that I, the way I understood composition was that I could do everything and be everywhere. And that was what, as a, as a high school student, that was, that was really attractive to me. I hadn't really composed that much um, in high school. It was sort of a few pieces that I kind of threw together near the end of my, like really in the, in senior year and Mm kind of cobbled together an application and sent it in. Um, Yeah. And yeah, so, so that was the beginning of that, that story then. So then I did, yeah, I did um, four years at McGill as an undergraduate composition major. Um, and there's a whole lot to talk about there for sure. Um, yeah, we can go back. I mean, we, we can do macro right now, but I, I, I do think just having the framework, kind of like one of your pieces that you wrote where you get the entire framework of the piece structurally in the first uh 30 yeah. seconds and we'll, we'll go back and kind of touch and right. piece apart okay, cool. yeah so i'll do a kind of yeah zoomed out exposition okay so then there's the <laughs> then there's the yeah so finished four years of of uh mcgill i auditioned for a master's at mcgill mm-hmm. uh initially or i sent in an application i should say and was rejected um, that was in the last year of McGill. I, I really wanted to just kind of continue at McGill. Huh. I, I felt that I wasn't done my work there. Um, I was working with a, a composition teacher I really liked, and I wanted to just kind of like carry on. Uh, and I submitted a really half-assed application for this master's, but the, I, I felt that I was like, well, they know me. You know, hey, I'm not going to, like, right. I'm not really throwing my hat in the ring the way that all these other people are, right? But right, they I got the back door. Oh, What's wow. that? Oh, I, it, just going in through the back door. But I, I didn't. Re- I actually didn't even realize that you were rejected. I had forgotten. Yeah, that's right. I was rejected, and and it was also kind of. Uh, it was one of these things where you just go check the website, and it just said the word rejected. And <laughs> there was no like uh, kind email or anything or note from any of the profs that I like had personal relationships with. It was just like hmm, your status is updated to rejected. Oh man, that's so crazy. Yeah. Uh, so you took a so you took a year off. Yeah. So I took a year off uh and I composed a lot. My feeling was that I wanted to prove that um that I could I, I wanted to prove to myself and to, you know, the institutions that I was applying to or that I planned to apply to that composition wasn't just something that I did in school, that it was something that was a part of me. Um mm. and so for the next few months I wrote some of the like big sort of important pieces for me, um, which I think you, you played on. Um, I played on a couple of them. There was monastic reveries was, yeah, there was so, 
Right. Well, and the, and the actually, let's take let's take a little pause here because I think composition in general, there's lots of types of composition, and the the type of composition that you're referring to generally would be considered what, like, it would be considered classical, contemporary classical. Yeah. Sometimes it's just called new music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. It's it's, it's in the classical uh, lineage, so to say, somehow. But was what was fascinating about that piece that you wrote, and a lot of the pieces that you've written, I've played on. I've had the the very very distinct pleasure of playing on a bunch of them, and they've really pushed my abilities because you you know you've you've really come up with some very interesting extended techniques and things to do that are, that force me into a new uh, to to view the piano and to view music making in a different lens. But this piece that you wrote, that first one that I remember playing on, was kind of based on loosely on Thelonious Monk. That's right. Uh, yeah. So, so maybe speak a little bit to that. Like, there's already a little bit of a discrepancy there between a, the classical contemporary thing, and now you're integrating. You're you're already mixing styles, which already made you a very unique voice to me. I remember reading it. So, just yeah, in terms of you finding your voice and and having these different. Um, influences. Do you want to just speak a little bit about? Yeah, about yeah, definitely. That? Yeah, I always kind of thought of myself as, um, or I, I maybe I should put it this way: that I always kind of set up situations where I could be an outsider, kind of. Uh, and there's all sorts of reasons that you know I talk about with my therapist about why that's the case. But <laughs> the one of these was in my undergrad of like. Uh, I, I was I was a composer, but I also like did jazz, and so but I was a jazz player, but I'm like was also a composer, right? And so I was sort of like I had one foot in each of these things, and um, so yeah, I mean there was this feeling of like I want to take in all of this information about Stravinsky and Schoenberg and Ferrez and you know Boulez and this, this 20th century you know, master composers that they're teaching me about, um, mm-hmm. and kind of find a way to have that, you know, be integrated with the music that was like really like in my heart, which was, you know, was like improvised music, jazz music, like I said, funk music for like when right, I was in right. high school. So finding a way to take these new voices that I was being exposed to and that I was fascinated by and have them really become part of my own like sort of musical intuition rather than something that I was like just trying, trying on, you know. Did you Looking get back, pushback course, for that? You know, that integration is, you know, in its early stages. It was never, it was really kind of just forcing these things together and it, the maturity comes later. But I think that's, that's something that you have to do is write a couple uh, adventurous and, and bad pieces in, in your early stages and, and, and just go from there. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you get push? did you get pushback at all for, for that impulse? Like of not adhering to, or was anyone, was that encouraged, I guess? And is there across different programs, is there maybe a different level of encouragement to be pushing those boundaries? Or is it kind of like, is your undergrad more for conventional learning techniques and then you branch out more in your master's? I guess that's kind of the question uh, that I would, that I would have uh, there. Yeah, I was very conscious of that. Um, th- that there would be pushback and there were pushback for some of my peers, um, particularly those peers who were too much toward the kind of tonal common practice side of music making mm-hmm. and, and who didn't incorporate enough of those 20th century trends. Uh, I always had enough of that, so to say, 
um, to avoid any kind of pushback from my professors. I did get pushback in other ways though. Um, I pushback related to things like uh, perceived lack of uh, development uh, in my music that I started to be really interested in kind of just sitting somewhere and staying there for a long period of time. I remember one professor said to me, uh, you can't just make sound effects. <laughs> um, <laughs> just like, and it's true. I mean, I looked at the piece and I was like, yeah, it's just, I am just like kind of exploring different sounds and repeating them over and over again and asking my audience to just sort of like meditate in these sounds the way that I like mm. to. Um, and the insight there was that, you know, you can tell the, a story with these sounds rather than just kind of displaying them as is. That was something I sat, that sat with me for a little bit, but that was like the closest thing to a kind of um, pushback, so to say, for what I was doing. Hmm. Um, uh, okay, so tangential question here. So this whole time, what, how are you, I know we lived in Montreal, and for those of who don't know, Montreal is, a, even to date, is a very cost-effective uh, city to live in from like a rent perspective. Uh, if I remember correctly, I know it's changed a bit, but our first apartment that we lived in together, we each paid $333 Canadian a month. Yeah. Um, yeah. so what, especially that year in between you, you did work. And I guess the question is how did you, until like now you have a, you have a position now many years later, which we'll get to what kind of things were you doing? during undergrad in that gap year during masters uh, like maybe around that period just to to sustain yourself i mean were were you finding work in music were you what kind of experiences did you have and did you feel like uh those were gratifying was it just making a living like because i i know a few but i'm sure there are many that that are are even more enlightening so yeah so maybe i should just pause and say like you know, the only reason that I could have been where I was at that time was, you know, because of my class, you know, already that there, there is this, you know, I, I had piano lessons as a child and my parents were fully supportive of this and I could pursue music and not something that like would be more obviously lucrative uh, because my parents thought that that was something that was worth doing and that they, they could support me if I needed it. Right. right. So just to say that straight up, that there was... Yeah. Like in Canada, it's easier to do that than in other places. It's a, it's an easier pill to swallow, I guess, like your kid going into the arts because there is rich arts funding and so on. And, and the yeah. university isn't just like insanely expensive where you're going to be straddled with like a lifetime of debt. So I was really lucky to go to an institution that was not crazy uh, expensive. And I was able to graduate without debt, right? So, well, so right. And right McGill... McGill was, if I remember correctly, for I remember like in in province was something ridiculous. If you were a Quebec student, it was like college or university, excuse me, because there's a distinction there. University was like three thousand dollars a year. And I think, do you remember? Do you remember just just to put this in perspective about you know what that is to be able to graduate without debt like that? Do you remember how much college was for out of province? Did, was that something I you were know, ever I think aware it was of? like a, about double that. Like I think it was a, maybe around six or seven thousand dollars or something like wow. that. Wow. Um, yeah. So completely manageable, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so I was in. I was in that. So I'll say that there's all sorts of reasons that I was where I was at that point, and 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 that made sense. 
Um, what did I do? Uh, I did basically the only thing that a person with an undergrad could do at that time in Montreal, w- which was teach, uh, teach music. And so I, I got a, a gig at the West Island Music Academy and it's in the West Island because it was like an English part of Montreal, which is, you know, a whole thing that we won't get into, but uh, English speakers have to go further out um, to, to get work in any case. Um, yeah. So I taught um, kids how to sing their favorite pop songs and I accompanied them on piano. And that was like, it wasn't a good job. Like it didn't pay well. Um, but it was like a, an amazing musical experience for me because I learned mm. so many songs and I learned how to play with kids in the way they want to. And there was this real sense of like joy that I had um, all the time. And it, it reminded me of like before undergrad, all the stuff that I, that got me into it in the first place, like playing songs with friends and stuff. Um, mm. And so it was an amazing experience. And I got very good at, at, at learning pop songs <laughs> really quickly by ear. Um, And so it was really amazing just like from just my own musical advancement, like just doing that was, was fantastic, but they paid, you know, they paid me poorly. They kept a lot of the money. It was a bad, it was a bad uh, for me um, situation. Do you remember, do you remember how much you made hourly? Because I actually, we have similar backgrounds. My, my first year out of uh, undergrad as well, I taught for a private agency and I think after their cut, I made like, I made, Twenty six dollars, dude. I made sixteen sixteen dollars an hour was my starting at the West Island Music Academy, Um, and they charged something like fifty dollars for that hour, um, which was brutal. Yeah, and I was just like, yeah, I really didn't like that dynamic. Obviously, of like I'm doing everything. That was the beginning of, of me becoming a real leftist, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like 50%. I mean, I think there's a generalized thing where where if the person, you know, because owning the school and getting the clients and whatever, sure. sure. But I, I do feel like most places where I've felt like I was being properly treated, that I, I got a, it was like a 50-50 split ish. Yeah. Yeah, Which that would be perfectly makes reasonable. Makes kind of sense. Yeah, yeah. So that's like seventy-five twenty-five. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty ugly. Wow. Um, yeah, and and yet it was enough. Like it was like really the reality is it wasn't it wasn't as much as it should have been. But in Montreal, which is just you know tells you you know how how the cost of living was there. It's just insanely low. Um, right. So we had a two bedroom apartment there. Um, me and and my wife and we were paying like 960 for the place. Oh, so wow. My 16 hour uh $16 an hour job was was enough for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I started so anyway, so I did that for my year off and I continued that during my master. Um mm. and so so continuing the story, I took that year off, I composed uh and I worked and I uh put together some applications. Uh, and I was trying to get into master's program again at McGill. And then an, mm-hmm. I think I applied to a number of PhD programs. Uh, and that's the thing in, uh, I mean, in many, in academia is you can go directly from your undergrad to a PhD typically, right? There's something called an en route master's, which is like once you've written your exams in the middle of your degree, you get a master's halfway through, and then you do the PhD portion, which is like the dissertation. Um, so I was looking to get into one of those PhD programs. I think I applied at Columbia. I applied at Princeton, I believe, um, and then McGill. 
and it may have just been those three. Uh, I, I could be wrong. Um, but I got, anyways, I got into McGill this time. I didn't get into the other two, um, but I got in for a master's. Um, and that was, that was good. And so then I started there um, the next fall and it's a two-year program. I think it ended up taking me three or even technically four years to complete. Um, but that was, and that was the beginning of, for me, like a kind of new side of my like research interests. So up until the beginning of my master's, I was like, I'm going to be a professional composer. I'm going to, and what that meant for me at that time was, uh, a steady flow of commissions. And that's really the, how, how it works for a new music composer is that you have to find an ensemble or a set of ensembles or a bunch of young upcoming uh, musicians, soloists and chamber groups who, who are into your music and want to promote it and play it. And they commission you or you get, or you jointly apply for a grant that will pay all of you um, to put on yeah. a concert of your music. I think that it just, can you, digress ever so slightly about grants and about especially now that you've been in the States because you you are you reside in New York City now and and up until I went to Canada I had never even heard of an arts grant I know they exist in this I mean I was also ignorant but like uh I was floored the types of things that people in Canada were applying for for arts grants and and receiving was mind blowing. Can you, t- can you just give a, the listeners like a little bit of background on, on the grant process? Because Definitely. I think it's really, yeah. So I, it, it relates to what I was saying before, which is that it's important to make bad art. I think uh, when you're young um, and it's important to be able to experiment. And I think that the Canadian government kind of like agrees with that. So they have the, the, the Canada council for the arts, right. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of money that every year goes out to people who apply for it. And mm-hmm. typically a lot of those are like young up and coming emerging artists, so to say. I think that's like that at the, at the time I was doing it, there's new categories now, but at the time there was a category called like emerging young professional musician or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so you apply with a project um, that is a piece or uh, a set of pieces or a concert you want to put on or something. And you have to propose it somehow. You say, here's what I'm going to do. Here's the impact it's going to have. Um, here's how much money I need and, and what I'm going to spend it on. And that can also just be, I'm going to just use it for subsistence. You know, you don't have to use it to buy equipment or to pay people. It can just be like, I'm going to live off of that money while I'm composing. And that's perfectly legitimate. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of money for that in Canada. And yeah. in the States, there's the, uh, the, the National Endowment for the Arts. Right. Uh, and, and it's, I mean, it's one province, actually, there are, there are, in, in Canada, has more money than the entire endowment of the United wow. States. Just and, in and Quebec, oh the, the, the Arts Council in Quebec, just that, has more money than the, the, the NEA. Oh. Um, and, no. and so, oh. I mean, that means that that money is, it's very competitive, right, to get that money. And so what yeah, that means is that three and a half times the number of people in the States is in Canada total. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So even if it was the same amount of money, even if it was, even if it was, you know, anyway, um, point is what happens here is that there's money for the arts, but it goes to people 
who probably don't really need it. It goes, it's, it's, it adds to their prestige perhaps, or it allows them to get the best musicians to play their works or to rent out, you know, Domena or to rent out some really awesome hall in, in New York. Um, uh-huh. You know, but they already have, these people are already, have already made it. So they're not emerging in the same way. Whereas with, with a lot of money, you can actually fund young people to make bad art. And that's so important. Make your piece that no one likes and that it's kind of ugly and that is a failure, but that's an investment. You're saying fail as an artist on our dime because we care about that. We care about training artists. They have to have that stage where they're immature and that they're trying things that are too big for them to accomplish. And then they go on and become mature artists. But, but Uh, you are, the idea is that your country can do that for you. But I, I think that is one of the most fascinating differences between our upbringings culturally, even though Mm -hmm. we have a lot of similarities as people. um, I think there was always, especially like, you know, my high school was the stereotypical high achieving uh, nationally competitive music yearbook, like maybe some sports, but mostly like academic pursuits. Um, Right. I don't think there was ever, I think maybe in high school, there was some room for make bad art and try things out. I think there was a sense of exploration and of storytelling. I think though, because of how competitive American schools tend to be, the flip side of that was maybe there was some space for it in high school, but there was always this idea that by the time you came to perform something, it was polished from, Mm. from infancy from like like that ethos of okay I'm 17 and I better be playing like Wayne Shorter uh right. and if I'm not I'm fi- like without understanding the entire life that Wayne Shorter or like a you know a, a a well-renowned musician has lived and failed and had you know not missed their rent and done this and done that and had a million life experiences that contribute to the to their music and to their concept and you can feel their life through their music. So I, I think there is the idea that the Canadian government or other governments, probably in Europe as well, probably Definitely. most other governments, are willing <laughs> to allow that space for growth is it's astonishing. It's a, I mean, it's crucial. It's a, it's if you if you care about having an artistic society, which you know maybe you don't, but if you do, then you have to accept that that's going to be part of it. And then that is, there's an inherent goodness to allowing for play and exploration. Right. Huh. So I think that's a really good transition point to, so you're like in your masters and then at some point you and your wife do come to the States. Right. And if you want to talk a little bit about the transition from, yeah, definitely. or anything so else I, from that. Yeah. Yeah. So in my masters, what happened was I found a kind of side of music that was really more about research. Um, and that was when I worked with a music psychologist and he was interested in, in um, timbre. And there was this very like uh, technical side of, of thinking about um, and a, kind of like a philosophical sort of perceptual side of, of music theory that I hadn't really thought about in a formal way before. Uh-huh. And so I worked with, um, with this researcher, his name is Stephen McAdams. Uh, I worked with him on a, on a research. Uh, I had the best job of my life still to this day is the best job. 
Uh, and it was, they paid me to like look at orchestral music, to read these orchestral scores and um, to notate um, these perceptual effects. And we won't get into the technical side of that, but it was really just part of this, this research was maybe there's something about acoustics and perception that can teach us something about the way music is orchestrated. Right. Mm. And so, so I got the job of, of annotating all of these scores for these so-called perceptual effects. And that was my job for like a year of, I sent in these timesheets where it was like, yeah, I spent four hours with this Ravel score and I got to notate it in terms of like what I think is happening perceptually. So it was this uh -huh. fantastic um, opportunity. Again, that was funded by, in this case, it was funded by a, a Quebec, a Quebec council for social sciences and humanities. But, but again, sure. there, there was funding there that allowed me to hang out with a bunch of music for a while. Um, so that's right. amazing. Um, and anyway, so that kind of sent me down a path. It sent me down a path with my own music and um, mm. kind of as my own scholarly persona, I, I kind of developed into like, maybe I want to think about ways of analyzing music for its color in a certain way. Um, and so that, that was so, uh, planted a seed, I think, um, that got you know, watered over the next few years. Um, mm. So I finished the, my master's and there was an immigration um, concern because my wife is, is, um, is American. Right. Um, and so she had, she was at McGill. That's where we met and, and her visa was done. And so we decided uh, to move to the States. That was what really, really brought us there um, and started a process of getting, uh, getting me a visa, um, a green card. So, I mean, that's another way that I'm really fortunate in, is that, you know, I'm looking at a, one of my best friends who's here in New York and he's Canadian and he wants to stay in the States and can't <laughs> because he just doesn't have the green card. Um, so, so I'm feeling very fortunate for that, you know, that my wife was able to, to do that for us. Um, yeah. I I'll also just, just once again, to kind of I, things I didn't learn until I moved to Canada for, for someone coming to the States, you know, someone I was close to a bunch of people I've been close to over the years, tried to also tried to kind of immigrate or at least resettle and work in the States. After I graduated McGill, um, I'll never forget this. The I went and applied, I had a study visa and then I went and applied for a work visa, which if you were foreign in the States, you would do as well. The Canadian work permit that I got, was $150 Canadian and was good for three years, had no direct stipulations that I had to be working or reporting what work I was doing. And they gave me a healthcare card. Yeah. They gave me a single payer healthcare card. And had I wanted to stay, I, I think had I stayed the full three years and then maybe one more year, in addition to all the schooling I had done, I could apply for citizen. I could apply for, uh, Whatever permanent the interim residency. step, permanent residency. Yeah. Right. So like the, the, the process was ridiculously simple. Mm -hmm. It was like apply, get approved. They were like, yes, you pay $150. And now they're like, you can work if you want. You don't have to work. That was mind blowing to me after seeing people have to spend thousands of dollars on lawyers and immigration uh, forms oh, yeah. and assistance and meetings. And, yeah. Yeah. What we ended I mean, up having to do really was apply for a visa that let me enter the country to get married. But I can also enter the country whenever I want because I'm a Canadian. And I can usually just oh, enter by right. saying, hey, I'm a Canadian. Um, but I had to apply for this visa that, that said, you're allowed to enter the country, which I already was. 
but I had to do this specific way where I'm entering for a particular purpose, which was to get married within 90 days. It's called the K-1 visa. So we did that. And we couldn't just, I couldn't just enter the country and get married because then that's what's called direct consular processing. And then there's a whole thing where I would have to spend time in Canada while she spends time in the States and we would have been apart for like a year. So wow. this was the only way. And there was, yeah, we got lawyers and the lawyer misspelled my name, which is amazing. So I had to sign <laughs> all this documentation where I was Stefan Spencer. And then there was all this yes. confusion, like in the final stages. So I'm like, no, please, please just look at me. Look, here's my name. It's Stephen. It's an E. Can you do me a big solid and change that A to an E for me? Oh, and yeah. And there was literally oh, yeah. like there was one person at a desk who was like, got it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I was like, thank God. When we, went, when we went to apply for the most recent mortgage we applied for, they they did a credit check and they said and one of their stipulations was can you please explain like in in writing official writing like who who is who who is this person who appears on your credit report Daniel W Garom G A R O M <laughs> and I was like that's me that's a typo <laughs> but they were like we need official documentation proving who Daniel W Garom is but, all right. Right, or there's like um, Bob Dan Garmin. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you came to this. So you made it. You made it, though. You got married. Yes, yes. right. And so that was. Um, let me just think if I can get it in my head. Okay, so so actually, what what happened is this: um, the visa thing moved us to the states, um, but we were thinking of going to the states before then, a year before. Um, and that was because I had applied for PhD programs and DMA mm. programs. Um, and so, yeah, we were planning on, on leaving because I was planning on getting into to a school. So I had finished my master's at this point, or I was about to finish my master's. Um, and I applied to a bunch, a big list, two NYU's, um, See if I can remember. Yeah, because there's a Steinhardt School and there's a Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. So I applied to both. Wow. And then there's the, and then I applied to, I believe, Harvard, Princeton. I had really high hopes, you see. And then I think I (laughs) applied to uh, Northwestern, maybe, or maybe that was the next time around. Uh, And then USC. Oh, and UC Uh Berkeley. Okay. So I got a bite from USC. And from NYU, one of the NYUs, like from GSAS. And I also got an indication that I was on the wait list at UC Berkeley. So, but USC called me and they invited me down for an interview. And this is an interesting academic sort of, this is a window into how this stuff works. I'm a desperate grad student. They're an institution with a lot of money, but they know I'm a desperate grad student. And so it's kind of this weird test how willing are you to come down for an interview? Right. Huh? You know, so, so what they, they, you know, I'm in Montreal, they're in LA. And so they're like, can you come to an interview? I was like, okay. Um, and so basically I was like, yeah, of course, of course I'll come for an interview because I want to go to your school so bad. So we flew there. Like it was, they, they didn't pay for anything. It's not like they're flying all their grad students and they just had, you know, I got there and it was like, like 30 people who were in the same position as me. Right. Uh, And so they got us all to come down and we listened to this concert or this presentation by stuff, student works. And then we had a short interview, a musicianship test. And then I, then I went home 
I felt very good about it, but, but the funding there. So here's the thing I got in, right. I got accepted to USC, but I'm pretty sure that most of the people who showed up for that interview did because they just said, yeah, come on, come on down. But it's crazy expensive to go there. Like it's, it was like, I don't know. I don't remember the figures exactly, but it it was something that my Canadian brain had a hard time wrapping itself around because it was just, I I would be hundreds or, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in debt after just a few years. And because they they didn't offer me funding, they said, come here, no funding, unfortunately. The funding that I really, really, really was trying for was not even like a stipend. It was a TA ship where you would be a teaching assistant and you would get something like $11,000 and they would wipe your tuition. So you don't have to pay tuition and you get $11,000 for the year, um, which is not enough. Right. But that was something that I was like, please, please, please give me that amazing funding package and let me go to to LA and not end in like a, you know, debilitating amount of debt. Like, so that was the best, right? Right. $11,000 in a TA ship. Wow. So I didn't get that. So it didn't work out. Um, Meanwhile, I had applied for a grant from the Canada Council. And the Mm -hmm. purpose of the grant was to go to LA. They were going to give me something like $17,000 Canadian um, that would help me sort of in that first year, right? And I applied just for that purpose, to move to LA, to study with this person to for subsistence during the first semester or something. And I got it, right? So I got that grant, but I didn't get accepted to USC. And what's more is that I got an, a prize, which was for the best application from a composer for that mm-hmm. grant cycle. It's called the Robert Fleming Prize. And that's just sort of like a monet. There's sort of like a nominal amount of money, but it's more that's like, it's the, it's the recognition. Um, But I was in this situation where I was like, well, but wait, I didn't actually, I'm not actually going to USC. Right. I got in without funding and now the Canada council is going to give me a little bit of money. So I guess I could use that, but it's not going to be enough. Right. Right. So I, I already basically declined USC and then the Canada council called me and told me I got it. Wow. So I was, so I was like, shit, I'm going to have to turn down this like meaningful amount of money for me at the time. And still, I mean, the meaningful amount of money to anybody. Um, But what ended up happening was I told them, can I defer this money? Cause I want to keep the prize. (laughs) Like that's an important thing for me. I'd (laughs) love to be, still have a Robert Fleming prize. Um, Can I defer this? And they said, yeah, sure. Basically they do it all the time. So Mm -hmm. But I had to make sure that I got in the next year somewhere. Otherwise, it would just disappear. Right? Got you. So we then we're like, let's stay in Montreal, I guess. And then we realized the visa thing. So we moved to the States with the K-1 visa. We get married. And we live in Philly for a year. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I loved no, Philly. I, I, actually, I actually really love Philly, man. We, and we were very like – so that's a situation where our privilege comes in again and saves the day a little bit because – I was there and I couldn't work yet. Oh, I wasn't wow. allowed to make money. Um, and Ange was um, was working as a waitress at a restaurant in the neighborhood. Wow. And so it was just us. And like that wouldn't have been enough to cover our very reasonable rent. Philly is another place where the rent was reasonable. We had a two-bedroom, two-bathroom. We were paying something like $14.50. Um, wow. 
so so that's pretty good. I mean, I don't know. Some listeners may be in other places, but in New York, that's like unheard of, right? That's like unheard of. Absolutely like unheard of. Studio maybe in like a really a neighborhood you don't want to spend too much time in. Right? Yeah. Um, so so, but we we still it wasn't enough to to really afford that. So we had help from parents to cover that rent. So here's a just just to back up for a sec. What exactly is the stipulation in place for that you can't? work because that feels doesn't that just feel prohibitive in terms of like if you're trying to build a life in a new place and what 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 is exactly the idea that you can't work is it just that until you get married or until you have a certain thing or it's like you have to have work authorization like the idea is um i was waiting for it to be processed so i got a k1 which just Mm -hmm. allows you to enter for 90 days and get married within that 90 days and then, then you wait a few months. I mean, it's supposed to be like four or five months until you get like an authorization to work. And, wow. And authorization to, to re-enter the country, by the way. I also couldn't, I mean, I could leave. I could, I could leave whenever I want, but I wouldn't be able to come back. So I had to wait a while to get a card that said you, can, you, you're, you will be able to, to enter the country again. Um, uh. Yeah, so I, I was a volunteer yeah. at that time. I was I, I worked as a volunteer at uh, the Free Library the, 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 of Philadelphia, uh, and, and I worked in like the music scores area, um, which was super fun. And I was like, they have this amazing performance library there. So I looked through all these weird old scores. Um, nice. And so that was what I, that's how I spent time. And I composed, and I applied again to get into schools again because at this point in in my career, I just I had. I was all in on academia. I had decided, and this was a path that I think, I think was, it became the sort of like only logical path for me at that time because my undergrad was in composition and now I had a master's in composition and I was kind of really feeling the research. And it, it just, the, the master's feels like a kind of stepping stone. It's kind of like, it doesn't get you that much more that you had in your, in your undergrad. It's not like people, like you said, people aren't really asking if they're asking you to compose something for them. They're not like, wait, hold on. Do you have a master's or just a, <laughs> a, a B muse? Right. Um, so, so the master's is really functions as a stepping stone to the PhD. Yeah. Um, and so at that point I was like, well, it's like almost like a sunken cost thing where I'm like, okay, I'm not, now I'm yes, in. It's very sunk cost fallacy yeah. in terms of unless, unless you're willing to fully unless you're willing to fully commit. I mean, yeah, it's hard to turn back. Yeah. And also you are in it. Like I was fully immersed in this kind of way of thinking about music and I wanted to do that. Um, and there were, yeah. And, and yeah, there wasn't much else for me to do. Yeah. Like I could work as a, I could try to find work as a freelance composer. Um, but I wasn't really interested in doing that. I wanted to have, I also wanted to have the recognition of, because there's this whole prestige thing that goes on in, in academia too, of like, I won't be, it's, it's like, I'm not a composer unless an institution tells me I am. Right. Which goes yeah. back to the conference and looking at people's name tags and trying to decide how much respect they're owed. Right? That's a <laughs> very real thing. That I that it's on every young academic's mind is I got to get into the, the program so that I can so and because that's going to legitimize my entire identity that I consider myself a scholar of music but I'm who 
I'm not an independent scholar. I'm, I'm just a person reading stuff, right? So until an institution says, okay, we're going to invest in your work, then, you know, that, that's the point where you feel like, okay, I, I'm actually doing this. And I really felt that. When I applied again, I realized, okay, maybe like the Harvard-Princeton like thing isn't where, who I am. Like maybe I don't need to go to like an Ivy League Right. Mm -hmm. And I found, you know, I started thinking more about schools that really kind of fit my sort of vibe. And I wanted something that was really interdisciplinary. I wanted something that um, had a really good faculty, but that would allow me to do theory and composition and musicology. And I just like, I really wanted this sort of openness. Um, I didn't want a program that just taught me how to compose because I felt that that would just be another version of this master's where the implicit assumption is you get good enough at music and then the career will follow. And I'd like to to flag that and touch on that in a a minute because that's something that's coming up for me as a teacher now. Hmm. We'll we'll talk about that. But that's that's very real is like um, your, your career is about getting good at a thing, right? In academia. Um. So anyways, I found the Graduate Center, the CUNY Graduate Center, and I, and I went and I met with uh, Suzanne Farron, who was there. We had this great conversation, and I, like, sort of, that was very clearly my top choice at the time. And anyways, that all worked out, and I submitted this proposal that was all about my openness and how I loved that institution for those reasons. And it was a very true, honest assessment. It was like, I love this institution for the following reasons. It wasn't like, I like Harvard because it's this, you know, amazing thing that everybody knows about. It's a household name, right? Right. I like Harvard because it's going to make me a Harvard grad. No, it was like, I like this institution because it's going to afford these possible possibilities for me. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And then that worked, uh, that worked out. And then I, and I started a composition degree there and always with this feeling that I don't know if I want to be a freelance composer. That's still kind of a, a steady flow of commissions. And then if you're lucky, like a professorship, right. And that's going to be, that's going to be how you make it work is. And and so that became very unappealing to me after a while. And I realized that I also like sort of at the same time realized that I wanted to, to write about music as much as, or more than I wanted to write music. Um, Uh. And I had a few kind of religious experiences with term papers where I, where I just wrote the shit out of these term papers and I kind of found myself being like, Oh, like this is right now, this feels like the truest version of me, like writing this, researching this, digging into this idea, you know, um, offering some perspective on, on these ideas. That was a new and really exciting thing for me. And so I started a kind of shift toward music theory. And, um, and that's, that led me down something new, right? And this is still building off of that research I did in my master's where I thought, hey, maybe this is kind of cool. I could think about it this way. And that ended up coming back around during my PhD. And I, and that's where I, you know, that's where I am, right? Um, Man, that is so cool. The thing that comes up for me listening to that is your sense through all of these hoops and through your path it's almost like you were able to always listen to what felt right and what didn't. 
in a way that was and 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 it's like your PhD clicked when you began searching for what was true for you rather than what was something outside of yourself that you were seeking. And right. I think that's really admirable. And I think in hindsight, uh, I'm just beginning to come to those things and mm. ask those questions that like, because I didn't have more school and I jumped into a career, which I loved. I genuinely and continue to love when I do perform and I, but, but the number of times that in the interest of clout or the interest of opportunity or the interest of putting the thing on the resume, which was the next stepping stone to hopefully something better, that I was always willing to be like, I know this feels bad. Like, I know this situation that I've put myself in isn't, not that it feels bad, like objectively this is bad. But for me and for what I feel and what I resonate with, it's not really correct. And it's just, uh, it's really interesting to hear how much your connection to yourself and you finding that was able to lead you down a path that led you, like that that in a lot of ways translates to people and people feel that. They're like, oh, Steve's like, he he knows where he's at and he knows what he brings to the table and he's kind of found that for himself. And that's obvious instead of coming into the room, just looking at name tags, being like, I have no basis of self. Yeah. Uh, I just want the name on the name tag, which I think is something that is, is the struggle that, you know, you, you st- like, you still want to succeed. Obviously you're not sitting here being like, I'm, I'm good in a basement. Uh, I don't right. need any, like there's still a desire for, recognition or a desire to to be validated by an institution or to have a paper published but then also that's counterbalanced by well I know I have a better sense of where I sit so yeah. I just wanted to point out that like that that's just something that I noticed in that story is that you I got think that's into really your perceptive yeah. yeah I think that's something that 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 I mean you know, I'm just thinking through that that way of framing it um and that's something that I that I like really believe in like when I'm teaching students for example um but because right, now I mean, you have I'll a say more about that in a second. Yeah, um, please. But but yeah, I think there's this feeling of like you have to get institutions to open doors for you, unfortunately. But if you can do it in a way where you're always the most you that you can possibly be, then that's you know, that's the best. Like for me, I always had this struggle of like I wanted to be the most me. Like that's why I chose composition because I found I didn't want to lose all of these things like French horn playing and piano playing and jazz and, you know, playing in bands that, because those things were truly me. And I wanted, I also, when I learned about Schoenberg, I wanted, I meant something important to me, but I didn't want to let go of jazz and improvisation and stuff because I wanted to make them the most me and you change and you grow, but you know, I'm always, I have this feeling of not wanting to shed parts of me. Um, Mm. And, and I teach that. So, so I have, a, you know, I have like a few composition students and that's something that I should say to them as well. In the, in your work, you should really be thinking about how, like what you love and what you value and what you want to hear and how weird you are. I mean, that's something that I've said to, to students before is like, you're weird and you have weird ideas and that's awesome. And you should put them in there and you should make them whatever they are. Put these two things together. If you like them, then that's the thread. You don't have to make this way, this narrative connecting these two 
disparate ideas. The fact that you love them both, that's enough. That that makes a thread for us. You're the person behind it and you're the glue that connects these different ideas. So that's something that I think is really important. That's something that definitely is, it informs kind of my whole path. It's like me trying to be the most me with all of these different influences and all of these different things. Well, and so, so you've, you've been doing your PhD at CUNY and then you basically were toward the point of finishing everything but the dissertation. And then in terms of the job market Mm -hmm. and in terms of getting to the point where now you are, you have a position. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about that because it's really deeply par- – so now you've done 13 years of school yeah, and you've invested that time and whatever money that entails and whatever path and you immigrated and you did all these things to get to that place. And then so like as you're finishing now, what were the options and what what was the next step and how did you get to where you, you are and what else do you see going on with – other people who are in your scenario. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's crazy. The the academic job market is, is bonkers. Um, It's extremely competitive. Um, There's a handful of positions that are good. You have to be willing to go anywhere, anywhere in America. Um, And yeah. And talk about some cost fallacy. Like you're, you're out here on a rock in the sea. You spent 13, 15 more years working on this one thing and you've so specialized that, I mean, who's going to hire you um, when, you know, you can do Hegelian dialectical readings of, you know, 18th century Viennese music, like really well, but that's like kind of <laughs> it. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what a single word you just said. So. <laughs> um. So it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's extremely competitive and it's, and it's um, not talked about a lot. We kind of just, again, this implication, this, this, the tacit assumption is that you get good enough at the thing. Yep. And the career will follow. Yep. And there's very little career thinking in academia. It's just do the thing really, really well. And then you'll be a star Go to the conferences, which, by the way, cost money. That's something we didn't say. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing at the beginning. I was like hoping to, to come back around to this. But that's the other thing is these grad students know that they have to go and make themselves, they make a name for themselves. They have to show their face. They have to introduce themselves to all of the big wigs. And it happens in the middle of the semester in friggin' Denver. And so how do you get to Denver? I mean, they don't like I, I go there and I get I can get the hunter to to reimburse me because I got my, I have a job at hunter and I will address your question about how that happened. But these poor grad students have to just pay out of pocket and go out there to show their face. And so insofar as a conference is an opportunity for advancement, it's also a vehicle for inequalities to become amplified because we we have grad students who can afford to go to conferences and grad students who who can't. So, you know, there's a whole thing there. Um, so I'm very lucky because I, um, was in my PhD and, you know, COVID happened and then I felt a kind of responsibility to help old professors figure out Zoom. 
Okay. That that's the first the first thing that happened no truly that I way. see as the story that 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 brought me to Hunter in a way was that I put myself out there and said, "Hey, if you want to do a, a session before our next class, we're just you and I, and we'll play with Zoom together. You can make sure you get your sound working and your camera and your mic and stuff. I'm your guy." And so all of my professors, the kid, you were the kid in fourth grade who set up the projector. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, turns out that, <laughs> that kid has a job. Turns out, um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, no, I, I basically reached out to my professors. I was like, "Look, you're probably freaking out about this having to do Zoom." And they were they, they've never done that. These are people who have paper handouts every class, right? So I was like, "Okay, let's like do it." And they all took me up on it. And I really do see that actually as the beginning of a of a, <laughs> a series of fortunate events that ended up with me at. Because my composition teacher learned that I was doing that and then set me up with uh, a number of profs at Hunter. And so I helped like 88-year-old professor get set up for Zoom teaching. And I was like, do you have a Mac or PC? And she was like, hold on, let me ask my daughter. (laughs) 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 It's kind of amazing. Um, anyway, so, so that's one sentence. So that's not really what got me the job at Hunter. That, that was something that, that, for some reason, in my in my story, there it was important that I like put myself out and like created connections with these profs. Because what happened was, um, and 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 that was the other thing is like just just creating personal close relationships with some of these people. Um, the job opened up at, at Hunter. There was a, a a series of lecturerships that are not tenure track professorships there you're hired to be a teacher and not not to do research mm-hmm. um and the union like got a bunch of these positions like 200 or something across cuny and so they were kind of distributed out i'm, I'm not sure exactly how that process worked but hunter basically had, had an opening and they were using one of these new lecturer positions and I was in a conversation with, I talking with Mark, Mark Spicer, who's the chair at Hunter, who was the interim chair at the time. And uh, he said, oh yeah, there will be an opening for a lecturer position. And actually you would be a good fit for that. And then when the position went live, I got an email inviting me to apply. And that's the like, in academia, that's like the biggest like coup is like, yeah, we're going to invite you. We're telling you to put your hat in the ring. And that's basically saying we're thinking of you for this position. It's still a competition. I still had to go and do the audition and it was really intense. And, uh, but, but yeah, they, they were thinking of me for that position. So I'm really lucky for that. I, I still haven't, and I, I may at some point have to like go on the job market proper and like send out, like cast a really wide net. Um, so for me, I'm very lucky. My colleagues have, there's a wide range of, of, uh, realities mm-hmm. one is like i know a, f- a friend who who sent out like 27 or something applications last year or two years ago yeah. she ended up landing a visiting assistant professorship which is a very temporary thing and then she was able to turn that into a professorship the next year that's a common gotcha. route get the vap which is a visiting assistant professorship and then turn it into a professorship the next year and then i have a, another friend who it was in composition and who's graduated fantastic dissertation, really, really excellent, beautiful, beautifully written, excellent analysis, but didn't like, it wasn't thinking about the career and wasn't told to think about the career and is, was just kind of, you know, fantastic musician. Um, 
But the thought of going on a job market for like the next two years and then being in your mid thirties and not having anything. I mean, what do you do? You could work an adjunct as an adjunct lecturer for like ever. You could just get, you could try and string together like five or six adjunct courses per semester, which will then give you enough to get like a livable salary in healthcare. But it has to be like four or five, six courses. Like this is an insane amount. Yeah. How many, how many courses do, how many courses do you teach? I teach three in the fall and four in the spring typically. And that's that's a high load. Yeah. That that's a that's a big load. It, it, for for professors, it's a two and three or something like that. Because the idea is that they're time they're using time for their research. So I'm really lucky. But I have and so that friend, for example, like you know, um, had to go back to school and, and is getting a, a certification to teach in the in middle schools in the DOE. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! But that. that- it, that's that just ruins me like that that thought because then like it's not it's not for lack of doing the thing that you're passionate about but it's like at the end of the day that to actually step back and face reality outside of academia um which just sounds like you know people who really continue their path out and out and out it can be a form of you know, what's the joke? It's like you have your mental breakdown. You either go to grad school or become a real estate agent or <laughs> whatever. Like, you know, that, that, uh, that's just hard, in a way, heartbreaking for me to hear because it just feel it feels like then they have to, you have to go back to school again. Yeah. That's the part that's really, and then go on the job market again. It's just a much more forgiving job market. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, I mean, firstly, I'm just really glad as someone who's known you for 15 years that you were able to, to land this because it makes, you know, it's really nice to just see people you've always loved and respected, like do it right. And like achieve a semblance of the dream or, or, or the thing. So just, just to state that, like, I'm incredibly happy that you're doing what you love. You have, you have students and you also teach non-composition students. You teach like intro to music or something of the sort. So yeah. like music appreciation. Fundamentals. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's all super cool, but um, wow. That is a crazy journey. Yeah, it is a crazy journey. And then you're out here and you're in your thirties and you have your first salary of your life. And it's still like, it's not particularly amazing salary for New York. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, uh, it's, I mean, the pay scale is really wide and I was able to, to get to negotiate my way quite far down the pay scale. But even still, I make $76,870 a year. That's how much I make just for the, just for transparency. No, I no, I, well, I mean, for, for absolute full transparency, I mean, yeah. until, until COVID, uh, you know, the, I think the most I ever pulled ever, uh, working a million hours a week on a million different projects, trying to, you know, get to the place where you're a union Broadway music director, which mm-hmm. makes like 3,500 a week, which was right. the goal. That was, that was the goal. Uh, I think, I, yeah, I think I pulled like 
not even what you just said. Like some, yeah. something close to that. Like right. about, about about that range, like yeah. sixty-eight. It's, it's a sensible amount, but there are jobs. Like there, I know somebody who has a job who just moved um, to this, like to Alabama, and is mm-hmm. teaching the same number of courses that I am teaching, and is making fifty thousand. Know, fifty thousand, sure, in, in Alabama, but you know, right. you also, there are costs of <laughs> of living, non-monetary costs of living in Alabama, surely. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, so, so, you know, it's a good, it's a good job. Um, what I wish is that in academia, there would be like an ongoing conversation about careers and careers that aren't, that don't require you to go on the academic job market. There is a little bit of a push for this now. It's called alt-ac, right? Alt, alt, alternative academic jobs. Um, and that, that grad students are thinking about now, but Mm-hmm. It's a problem with academia in general is that we're all music professors who teach these courses, right? Even at Hunter, even right. for my undergrads, I'm feeling this. We're music professors. And so we, there's like a survivorship bias, right? No, and, exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and that at what point is it actually advantageous for the people in the positions of power in an institution to just not talk about careers? Because then they would have to admit how difficult and, and actually the success rate of. Yeah. And how unlikely it was that they got where they are. Yeah. Right. That's like not how many contingencies happened along the way in my story, random things that happened that, that opened up something like, it's not that I just got good enough. Right. Um, so yeah. So it's something that we need to think about. So first of all, in PhD programs, there should be, we, we should be telling first year PhD students the things that they have to do to make it once they have the PhD and making it understood broadly, not just publish or perish, which is what you're told. Got to publish, got to publish or perish. And it's like, well, it turns out you can publish and then perish, right? (laughs) A lot of people do. People are perishing all around us and they're fully published. Um, So there has to be something of like, okay, how, how are you thinking about your skill set? You know, in beyond just, you know, I'm going to be preparing to think about this one thing or to teach adjunct courses, right? Um, right. And then in the in college, in, in undergrad programs like where I teach, we have to be willing to um, nourish the children or the students who are not <laughs> the children. nourish the children who are not <laughs> just following the path that we follow, right? That's that's what happens right now. Like I see it at Hunter is that there are some students who are like, yeah, I'm thinking of maybe doing a master's in music theory. And I feel this kind of warmth inside me. Like, yeah, of course, like, that's awesome. Like, but then I also feel this intense responsibility of being like, I, I want I want to let you know, like, just what that entails and how you could be like many of my colleagues and and follow that path through and have it not pay pay off. So that's one side of it is nourishing a certain kind of student and not t- warning them of the risks. And then the other side of this is not nourishing the other kind of student at all. Who's like, yeah, I kind of want to like maybe uh, work in marketing and yeah. my music degree, the way I think about music is going to just inform that. Or like, I'm a want to be film and media uh, person. And I like have want to get a music tech minor or something, you know, like these right. kinds of students that we kind of just don't 
we're not thinking about because we're all music professors. Everybody in the department meeting has a PhD in music. And so we are encouraging students to sort of, it's a cycle of abuse in its, in a way, right? We're just yeah. encouraging students to follow this path and then not being honest with them about how, how it works out. Right. Are there fears expressed? Like, as you say that here, and this is going to be, you know, really like, is that something that is still taboo enough that like, if people heard you saying that, They'd be like, oh, Stephen, how could you? <laughs> or is it like, 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 it, 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 is that a conversation people are even willing to enter into and 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 admit publicly? I know a lot of the people in academia are old. You're probably mm-hmm. one of the youngest, you know, in your mid thirties. You're, I would assume, you're one. I remember there was a piano yeah. professorship that opened up at McGill, and the guy who got it, I have, I loved. Uh, and this guy, Ilya Politov, and yeah. he, he was, yeah, he was probably about 35 and it was unheard mm-hmm. of. It was absolutely unheard of. Everyone's like, who is this young whippersnap? Well, like, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. so are people, are people willing to sit down and be like, oh yeah, you're right. We are all PhDs and we do all have a singular way or a, not a singular way, but a, a, a specified way of constructing the world. Like, are you feeling, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, first of all, there's hesitance for me to even like be that voice, like in a department meeting, you know, Um, for fear of that uh, dismissal or, um, you know, pushback in in various ways. I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, there's, there's this kind of narrative of like, look, we're a liberal arts university, like we're, we're college and we're focusing on, they, they come here, they learn critical thought and they learn scholarly methods and research. And, and we're not just preparing them for jobs. We're not a vocational school, right? That's the, right. the uh, buzz word, right? Or that's the thing that's repeated. We're not a vocational school. It's like, okay, I get that. But at the same time, whether you like it or not, the world is one that requires vocational thinking, right? And so we have to prepare. If we are going to say that we're like, you know, CUNY, we're an affordable education and we lift students up into the middle class. If we're going to say that, then we have to be thinking about encouraging vocational thinking in a certain way. It's not because, look, you can come and pay not very much money and sit in a music theory class and really know how to analyze augmented sixth chords or Neapolitan sixth chords or all of the long cadences of the Viennese classical style, right? Yeah. You can do that and learn it really. And then you, then where are you? You're exactly where you started with this knowledge because ideas aren't enough to get you somewhere, right? Just right. having the ideas is not, it's not everything. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient to get you there, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, my my response to that is like, no, we're not a vocational school, but we are purportedly preparing these students for their, for lives in music, and we're not doing that. Absolutely, man. Well, this has been so illuminating, and I'm really glad because I think uh, I've I it's occurred to me that it is systemic, especially from the performance side of things and jazz and looking at, you know, we had the, I've had the discussion with a couple with Josh from last week now, but uh, many other people too of like, okay, well you either have the person who's kind of old and out of the scene 
who's a professor, professor, or you have a bunch of adjuncts who are like very in the scene, but not maybe their heart isn't in teaching. And just like that, that, that there's very little coherent information given to students about what that life is. And so I was curious from the even more non-performance academic side of things uh, to hear that. And I'm really thankful that you, you know, have shared your insights because uh, I think these are real things we got to start talking about more. And I hope as professorship, as, as the average age of professors and lecturers and everything kind of comes down um, and becomes more older millennial and younger people that these are discussions maybe hopefully will be more willing to have and be fully transparent. Um, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me on and I commend you for starting these conversations. I think it's a really admirable project to have this be something that is just sort of out there in the open and discussed sort of just, you know, in its, in a, in a straightforward way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, any, any last, any last words, <laughs> any last <laughs> thoughts for, for the children <laughs> for, for, or for the, the 80 for the, something the year old. Zoom. Yeah, for, exactly. <laughs> now, just to, just to thanks. Thank you again for having me on. I really appreciate having this conversation with you. Awesome, man. Well, it's been a pleasure and I hope you have a good one. We'll talk soon. All right, man. Take care. All right. Thanks. Thank you again to Steven Spencer for being the fourth guest on Taken Off the Ritz. We have so much cool stuff coming your way. Even if we have 15, 20, 25 people listening, that's good enough for me. You guys are in for a treat. We are still free of ads. We are going to continue forward and try to find the widest variety of voices for you all. Thank you so much for tuning in. And we will see you next week on Taken Off the Ritz. Have a happy Thanksgiving.